Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, June 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Medical privacy in a post-Roe v. Wade world. We'll be joined by STAT's Eric Budman on the role HIPAA will play. Then, improving diversity in clinical trials has long plagued drug companies and academic researchers. Sats Angus Chen tells us about one success story. We'll start with a look at the week in biopharma. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and How can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions so the future of covid19 vaccines in the united states was at least somewhat cleared up this week at a pretty pivotal meeting of those FDA advisors that we have all come to know so well and seem to talk about on this podcast, if not feature on this podcast, week to week. Meg, what happened this week with that ragtag group of scientists? <laughs> yeah, I saw some people on Twitter talking about how like baseball cards should be made because they have like favorite <laughs> verb pack members. Um, so Tuesday, they got together for their fourth meeting this month. They'd started looking at the Novavax vaccine, then they looked at kids vaccines. And now they were on to whether the vaccines should be updated to include protection against Omicron for fall boosters. And it was a very interesting day. I mean, there was a lot of debate happening among the committee members. And part of that was due to just the uncertainty of what is actually going to be circulating in the fall, because the data that we have from Moderna and Pfizer on uh, bivalent vaccines and also um, monovalent in in some circumstances uh, that target Omicron are targeting BA1, which was the version of Omicron that originally came about, you know, after Thanksgiving in South Africa and then took over at the end of the year here in the United States. We're now on to BA4 and 5, which came after BA2.1, 2.1, which came after BA2 <laughs> uh, versions of Omicron, which have gotten ever more contagious. And there are some concerns that perhaps they might cause more severe disease as well, although there seem to be differing opinions about that. And we don't know what's going to come after those two. Um, And so there was just a lot of discussion about what makes sense here. Ultimately, the committee voted 19 to 2 in favor of recommending an inclusion of Omicron uh, in an updated booster. But what that actually will end up looking like is still an open question. The FDA will make its recommendations to the drug companies um, and 
you know, we'll go from there. But the challenge is that both Moderna and Pfizer have already started manufacturing the vaccines based on the work they've already done that include the old Omicron. And there was a lot of sort of pushing toward, well, shouldn't we include BA4 and 5, um, which I understand the spike of those is nearly identical. So you just it's basically BA4 and 5 would go into this new vaccine, uh, even though you'd really only be including, you know, one spike design for those. Um, but essentially, the companies would have to start manufacturing those now. And they were asked how long that would take. Pfizer says uh, it's already begun some work on that and could deliver these new vaccines in large quantities by early October, which is the time frame the FDA was hoping for. Um, but Moderna said they wouldn't be able to do it until perhaps early November. And they really seem to be pushing to stick with what they've already started doing, where they said they could have hundreds of millions of doses by August. And I think there's just a lot of diversity of opinion over some people saying, hey, we should get these Omicron shots out as soon as we can. Why are we waiting until the fall? We still have 100,000 cases in the day in, a day in the U.S. right now. Um, but of course, then there were the two people who voted no at the meeting, one of whom was Paul Offit, who's been on this podcast before. And he wrote a first opinion piece in Stat, uh, essentially explaining his vote where he thinks we need more data before we start going forward with these new versions. So, Meg, I'm a little confused. Is there still um, arguments about whether or not people will get new booster shots or they will recommend a booster shot for the fall? Or is it that it's just more about like what will what will be inside that booster shot that we will all be getting? Well, the, the FDA definitely laid out its concerns that we are in for another potential big fall surge because there will be waning population immunity, we'll be spending more time indoors, and the, the impact potentially of new variants, we could be in for you know another bad fall and winter. And so it does seem like they're leaning toward recommending um, additional boosters Perhaps not for everybody. I mean, that was another kind of point of debate here. Who who should be eligible for this? And that will come up at a different time. But there was discussion, maybe just the people who are already eligible for a fourth booster, people over 50 or even over 65 uh, or are vulnerable because of underlying health issues. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, younger people who don't have underlying health issues have been eligible for third boosters, but not yet fourth boosters. So you know, it, it could be unequal. And then the other thing is vaccine supply. We just announced, and the U.S. just announced a new deal to buy Pfizer vaccines, 105 million. Um, and, you know, Ashish Jha, the COVID response coordinator for the White House, is saying that's not going to be enough for everybody to get an Omicron-updated vaccine if we need them. Can I ask another stupid question? <laughs> Please. <laughs> of course I can, because I ask stupid questions all the time. Um, we're on we're on Omicron B4 and B5 now, right? Um Whatever happened to the idea that we're like they're using the Greek letter and that the new versions or variants were going to have different names? Is that they're not doing that anymore? <laughs> well, so I, I don't understand all of the nuances of this, but um, BA four and five are still Omicron. Okay, um, they are just subvariants of Omicron, um, and so we have gotten into this complex area where we have you know branched out even more under the umbrella of. Omicron, um, but I guess they haven't come up with a new sort of Greek letter system of naming these subvariants. Yeah, so if the, if, a, if another Greek letter does pop up, then we're completely screwed. <laughs> yeah, and I don't actually know what their protocol on that is. I mean, if if 
there is another version of Omicron that stems from the same lineage, but that turns out to be just devastating in terms of causing more severe disease or something like that, um, would they then give it its own Greek letter name? Yeah. I don't know. We should also now note that as we were recording this, the FDA put out its announcement about uh, what it is recommending the manufacturers do for fall boosters. And it is that they add an Omicron BA4 slash 5 spike protein component um, to a bivalent booster vaccine uh, for potential use starting in early to mid-fall of 2022. So that is what the FDA ended up going with. Um, The questions, there are questions about, you know, how much data we'll really have on these before they can potentially get rolled out. They are saying they want the companies to submit their clinical data on their BA1 Um, vaccines, which they've already generated. uh, And they do want the companies to begin clinical trials with these updated BA4 and 5 components. um, And they say those data will be of use as the pandemic further evolves. Whether we'll see those, uh, you know, the timing related to the rollout, I think that's that's an open question and something that, you know, some of the experts really wanted to see more of. But we have an answer. The fall boosters will contain BA4 and 5. Whether BA4 and 5 will be what are circulating in the fall, that's another question. Of all the confusing things in the healthcare world, HIPAA might be at the top. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act is frequently invoked when it comes to issues of patient privacy. But what does it mean at a time when reproductive rights are undergoing their biggest transformation in 50 years? After Roe v. Wade was overturned last Friday, Stats reporting team looked into the question of whether federal laws will shield reproductive health data from state law enforcement or legal action more broadly. Stats Eric Budman joins us now to discuss what that team found. Eric, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us what you and your colleagues were looking into with this story. So we really just started out with this question, how does the overturning of Roe v. Wade intersect with HIPAA and privacy laws? And I think part of that came from clinicians who were saying, well, if a doctor turns in their patient or reports on their patient, that's a... HIPAA violation. And we just thought, well, wait a second, what kinds of records can authorities actually access on their own? So HIPAA is the law that most people know. um, But Eric, what does it protect and how does it apply here? HIPAA is this sort of massive uh, privacy and portability law. And, you know, privacy is part of that, but that's actually not in the title of the act, as you may have uh, heard. And a lot of it has to do with making sure that patients are able to access their health records and that health records can be shared among providers. We might think, or we might like to think that HIPAA protects our health records from being read by authorities or accessed by authorities, but there are exceptions that allow law enforcement to get access to your medical records. And that's also true for other sorts of legal proceedings. So with a court order, with a subpoena, with a warrant, a court could essentially release those records. And so where does that leave things now with Roe v. Wade overturned, as we mentioned, in many states effectively criminalizing 
uh, abortion. When you spoke to people, how do they think HIPAA might be invoked? What protections might it afford or what protections might it not afford to people concerned that, you know, this law or just basically the law would allow their medical records to be turned over to law enforcement in cases like this? There are a few different elements to that question. There have been cases um, in which lawyers have successfully prevented the release of these sorts of records. Um, you know, there, there were a few important ones in 2004 when the Bush administration was trying to outlaw certain kinds of abortion-like procedures. And in those cases, subpoenas were quashed. But lawyers are now saying, well, wait a second, if we're overturning Supreme Court cases that have been around for decades, what does that even mean for precedent? How will judges deal with precedent? So it's really an open question as to what happens. And one thing that we've seen um, in states that have abortion restrictions is that enforcement has tended to focus on providers rather than patients themselves. But sort of an undercurrent, I feel like, of the whole question you're seeking to answer with this story is, could this be changing? Are there concerns that that patients themselves will be the targets of enforcement here? What did the experts you spoke with say about that? I think they are worried about that. And I don't have any definitive answers. I think, you know, they're worried both for providers and for providers' licenses and for patients as well. There is a, a history of people being prosecuted for miscarriages in some states where they, uh, there may have been drug use involved. I mean, there was one egregious case in which um, a pregnant woman was shot and was herself prosecuted for the loss of her fetus. I think it it. Experts are saying it would be naive to think that patients are going to necessarily be safe from prosecution in all these states. But again, it's sort of a wait and see game. Eric, your story also included uh, interviews with experts who warned that you know people should be careful about the digital trail that they leave in things like text messages or uh, online payment services. And you know we've also heard about apps like um, like menstrual cycle tracking apps, for instance. Um, what are the concerns there? We all create huge amounts of data every day through our devices, and much of those data are not protected by HIPAA. So I think the concern is that if law enforcement is trying to uh, look into whether you've had an abortion, you know, whether they're trying to prosecute a, a provider or something else, those data could be used as evidence. You know, um, in the past, law enforcement have used what's known as a geofence warrant to look at phone location data. And so legal experts are saying, if you are worried about this, you might want to consider not taking your phone to a reproductive health clinic, you might want to not be sending text messages about your reproductive health needs. Um, you might want to be mindful of what you're Googling. So it really is um, this kind of blanket warning from legal experts saying, just watch out about the data trail you're creating. So somewhat similarly, Eric, this week you wrote a piece looking at how basically in a post-row world, the environment for reproductive care is expanding, or at least potentially expanding, medical mistrust between patients and doctors. Can you tell us about that concept and the anecdote that illustrated it? 
Yeah, that was a case in which a woman arrived at an urgent care and did not know that she had been pregnant. And over the course of her visit at urgent care, not only found out that she had pregnancy hormones in her system, but also that she'd had a miscarriage, which was the source of the pain that brought her into urgent care in the first place. And what really struck me when I was interviewing her was she said, as she began to be, in her words, interrogated by the doctor about this miscarriage and whether she'd caused it herself, she wished that she hadn't come to the doctor. And I think that's from a, an OBGYN standpoint and from pretty much any medical provider standpoint, that's a really scary thought to think that patients will think twice before seeking medical care because they're worried that they might be blamed or might somehow get into trouble. Yeah, that's really scary. I mean, you think about that kind of situation and, and my first thought was, why did the doctor do that? And is it sort of illuminating this new world for providers who are then putting themselves in this situation where they're thinking, if I provide the care that I should provide here, am I going to get in trouble? Is that the kind of dynamic that you sort of uncovered with this you know, interaction? That's such a good question, Meg. And unfortunately, I didn't actually get to interview the doctor in question. So I can't be totally sure about his intentions, but that is something we're hearing about. OBGYNs in um, Texas have talked about pharmacists refusing or putting up barriers to filling prescriptions for uh, medications that are prescribed in the case of miscarriages. And it seems like that's really a, a worry on their part that it'll look like they're aiding or abetting in an abortion. And so we are already seeing this kind of confusion and fear among providers. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. There are a couple things about breast cancer and breast cancer screening that had always bothered Dr. Laura Esserman, a breast cancer surgeon from San Francisco. First, she's not a fan of the current medical recommendation that calls for every woman over 40 to receive an annual mammogram. Her hypothesis is that it would save more lives and result in less harm if each woman was instead given a personalized screening schedule based on factors including age, genetics, family history, and breast density. Second, like many medical researchers, Esserman is aware that the majority of cancer studies, including some studies that she has conducted herself, have not had significant representation from black or brown patients. Esserman thought she could do better with her next big study, which would recruit 100,000 women to test her hypothesis about a personalized approach to breast cancer screening versus annual mammograms. The study, which Esserman called Wisdom, would also have broad representation from people of color. And while Esserman's diversity goals were laudable, they were also frustratingly difficult to achieve. Stat reporter Angus Chen spent months reporting on Esserman and the struggle to enroll black women in her breast cancer study. He joins us now to tell us what he learned. Angus, welcome to Read Out Loud. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Angus, you write in your piece that when Esterman started the wisdom study, you know, she thought women from all racial backgrounds would flock to enroll. But what actually happened and how many black women actually did enroll in the beginning and how many white women? Yeah. Uh, so that is 
definitely not what happened. Um, in the very beginning, Esserman and her team, uh, they had a plan to recruit 100,000 women in like the first year or two of the trial. Um, they thought that by sending out an email blast to the University of California sites, they would quickly accrue the trial, which um, in retrospect was just, I mean, totally wrong. Instead, they got a, you know, a few thousand women. Um, the vast majority of those women were white. And uh, in the first three years of recruiting for the trial, only 1.7% of the patients she enrolled were black. Um, I think that comes out to maybe a couple hundred uh, as opposed to really thousands of, of white women who who joined the wisdom study. Can you tell us about some of the specific changes Esterman and the team made to the design and conduct of the study to to rectify this problem, to have an impact on enrollment? There were some things I think that they did right from the very beginning. One of the things Esterman did before she started recruiting for the wisdom trial uh, was talk to patient advocates. And one of the things that patients uh, patient advocates had told her was they really wanted the ability to choose uh, whether to be randomized or not, or whether they would end up in the personalized arm um, versus the 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 control arm, so the annual mam- mammography thing. The idea here was to give the participants a little bit of agency, so that they don't feel like they're just um, you know a, a statistic in in the trial. That really they have uh, sort of ownership of this trial, and they have the ability to choose what they want to do. Much of the things, the changes that Esserman made for the for the wisdom trial going forward was in sort of that spirit. Um, so one key thing was they created this monthly community forum that allows, it's open to the general public, but it also allows participants to sort of give feedback to the study and uh, learn more about their own breast cancer risk, learn more about breast cancer in general, um, and just become more educated on the topic. Um, this is something that a lot of participants in the wisdom trial were interested in because they wanted to feel like they're getting something out of this trial other than just sort of the general altruistic feeling that you're participating in medicine and medical research, and maybe that'll help someone in the future. Um, And and that idea of um, that idea of sort of receiving something is really important in equity right now um, when we're talking about clinical trials and research, because in the past research has, when it, when it comes to communities of color, research has been very extractive, sort of like investigators parachuting into a place and saying, hey, I want to study your population, you know, give me your blood, give me your saliva, you know, give me your time. And, you know, and then I'm going to do this research and and just trust me, it's going to help you one, like help this community one day in the future. There are a bunch of other things. I mean, Esserman and her collaborators applied for an R01 grant from the NIH, which they got to expand their sites away from just University of California clinics. Um, this is a part of an, an organization that's been created called the Athena Breast Health Network. Um, that was a diverse group of patients, but primarily had catered to, um, to, to, to white women when it came to recruiting for research. Uh, and, and by expanding their sites to universities like the University of Chicago or University of Alabama at Birmingham, um, Louisiana State University, uh, sites in Miami and Texas as well, um, that allowed them to so it put investigators and clinical research coordinators on the ground um, and sort of embed them with communities of color and say, hey, we have this study going on. You know, we're recruiting from here. We're going to be here. We're going to stay here for you know, a number of years. Angus, outside of changes to the study itself, you, you write about other uh, structural barriers that often impedes diverse participation in cancer studies. You know, what are some of those barriers and how easy or hard is it to overcome them? There are things that I think a lot of investigators don't think about automatically. Um, so that includes 
what types of like what's the insurance status of the community that you're trying to recruit right um do they have you know a, a premium kind of health insurance that comes from blue cross blue shield or, or Aetna or cigna or something like that um or are they a population that's disproportionately on medicaid or has no insurance right um the sad reality of the of our country is that people who are on medicaid or people who don't have insurance are disproportionately people of color and one of the things that esmin started out with with started out requiring in the wisdom trial was you know having insurance and she quickly realized that if she kept that requirement she wasn't going to get a lot of people of color or she was going to exclude already a lot of people of color uh, people of color who might want to be on the trial i i think also when you're sort of doing this right in retrospect it makes it a little bit more difficult because you will if you were taking away sort of the insurance requirement and you were depending on insurance to pay for certain things in the trial that means you now have to raise the money yourself so the trial will cover the stuff that the, you originally thought the payers would cover. You may be a researcher who really, really wants to do good in, in this respect, but you're working in a super unequal health system to begin with. And in order to overcome that sort of very un, uneven playing ground, I suppose, um, you're going to have to work a lot harder to make sure that your trial is equitable and your, that your trial is just. And can you talk about why it's so important to have diversity in clinical trials? I mean, in your piece, you cite a statistic showing that breast cancer mortality has fallen for everyone, but it's still 40% higher for Black women than for white women. And these kinds of disparities persist across medicine in different areas. You know, and we often hear drug companies get criticized for having very low diversity in their clinical trials. What is the impact of that, both in terms of really understanding how to improve care for everybody to lessen these disparities, um, but also for ensuring that all groups feel that they're included in the research and know that a drug is going to work for them? Yeah, I, I think this is actually a really complex question. When you're running clinical trials, you're you're trying to test an advancement in medicine, right? You want to see if this new idea is going to improve care for your patients in the future. The problem is that when we have super cutting edge precision medicine today, especially in cancer, that medicine sort of relies on um, things like genetics, right? It relies on, on certain biomarkers that aren't the same in every single human being in, in, in the world, right? Like there's people are really biologically very diverse. And that's not to say that like race is the absolute determinant of that. I mean, race is a social construct. The issue is that when you're looking at precision medicine, you need to have people from all sorts of different ancestries represented. Otherwise, you're not going to be capturing that sort of that, that wide diversity of human biology in your trial. And if you're missing a big sub segment of people, let's say black people um, or Asian people or whatever, um, you might actually just miss out on an entire set of alleles that aren't as common in people with European ancestry. Um, and that might have sort of really important implications for how well certain medicines work or how, um, how well do certain, certain interventions work. That might account for some of the disparity that you talked about, like the fact that breast cancer mortality is 40% higher for black women than white women. And actually, I don't think we really understand all the factors that led to that disparity. But certainly, I think 
not having equal representation in clinical trials is a part of that disparity. But the other thing I would also say is that in clinical trials, I mean, it's so important for people to have access to clinical trials, not just for that reason, but also because you get better care on a clinical trial. If you have like, you know, an overwhelming amount of white people who are represented in clinical trials all the time, and an overwhelming sort of minority or disproportionate minority of people of color in those trials, that means that like, the people who are getting the best care in this country are still going to be white people. And um, I don't have the data on this, but uh, but I sort of feel like that's also part of the disparity is that like, you know, for any person, you want to make sure that you're going to get the best care that you can possibly get, especially when it comes to cancer. Right. And, and part of that means having access to clinical trials and being on a clinical trial and having access to that cutting edge medicine or that cutting edge technology that could be the standard of care tomorrow. Obviously, Esmond and her team did not solve entirely the problem of, of uh, lack of equity in clinical trials with this study, but they did massively improve the uh, diversity numbers in the study and, and specifically uh, increase the number of black women who were enrolled in it. I was curious, you know, over the past, I mean, I don't know how many years, but especially in the, in the last five or so, we have heard researchers and funding agencies and pharmaceutical companies acknowledge the dismal statistics of diversity in clinical trials and promise to do better. Based on, you know, what you learned with the Esterman case and, and maybe from from her experience as as the trial has gone on, are there lessons that could be implemented? Is there a, a sort of template that could be applied to clinical trials more broadly that might improve this issue based on her study? I would say, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of lessons to learn from this particular story. Uh, the first thing is that Esmond was able to recognize that she's not an expert or she wasn't an expert in health equity and diversity. So she reached out to the people who are. I mean, those are, um, I mean, there are many researchers of color out there who are leaders in this field and, you know, they understand medical trials. They understand clinical trials. They do them themselves as, you know, doctors and, and, and researchers at, uh, top tier institutions and universities. And Esserman, you know, I, I, in, luckily in some ways, I suppose, um, had worked with many of these researchers in the past. You know, she was very good friends with Funmi Olapade at the University of Chicago, uh, who, who is one of those researchers who um, has already deep ties and built key relationships in communities of color in Chicago. And so she was able to go to those people and say, hey, like, I'm trying to accomplish this. And can you help me? And they already knew her. They already trusted her. They they respected her as a surgeon, as a researcher, as as an oncologist. And they were like, "Yeah, I'm willing to help you because I know you, and I I I know what you're trying to achieve, and I know that you're genuine about it." So, Angus, we mentioned at the beginning that you know when when Dr. Eshman first looked into the enrollment of the study, you know that that uh, black women were less than two percent of the participants. After all this work that she did and and, and her you know consultants and people she worked with to to boost the diversity, w- what do the numbers look like today? Today, it's it's much better than less than two percent. So, in the, like from 2016 to 2019, I think 1.7 percent of their enrollments self-identified as uh, African American. Most recently, their most recent data from quarter one of 2022 showed that uh, 10% of their new enrollments uh, self-identified as black. So, that, I mean, that's a huge jump, right? It's like almost like an order of magnitude difference. And I think it is because of a lot of the changes that they've made in the last few years, uh, really committing to to all the steps that um, that help you form good relationships in communities of color, particularly black communities, and 
um, and, and building trust there. Well, Angus, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is usually the point of the podcast where I say that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. But first, we have a personal announcement from Meg. Uh, take it away, Meg. What's going on? I'm leaving. <laughs> Only temporarily, oh. though. <laughs> um, this is my last episode for um, probably the rest of the year. I'm expecting a baby next week, um, as folks who listen weekly have probably heard me talk about before. Um, so I'll be out um, with my second baby boy, and I'll miss you guys. I'll be listening every week, and I'm really excited to hear um, what you guys cover, and I'll miss you. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to miss you, Meg. We will miss you. And we will also understand if you don't necessarily listen every week, if you want to take a little bit uh, of a refresher. <laughs> this is all part of the master plan that Damien and I have to to sort of morph the Read Out Loud into more of a soccer-focused <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> I have been standing in the way because every time you guys try to talk about sports, I'm like, boring. So I would, I would, I would say that over your maternity leave, if you could sort of pick up an allegiance to an English soccer team, and then when you re rejoin us, you can talk about your favorite team as well, and that will that'll be great. I root for the team in Ted Lasso. <laughs> Is that a real team? <laughs> I don't think it's so. real Although enough, Meg. It's real perhaps enough. Perhaps by now, yeah, someone will have seen the business opportunity and made it real. In the meantime, thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who you think should read the opening lines of the podcast while I'm gone. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>